The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hi, it's Glenn Lowry here, The Glenn Show. You've tuned in expecting to see Glenn and John because it's our turn every other week, Glenn and John, the black guys, and you won't be disappointed. You will see Glenn and John, but you will not see us creating new content. Happy 2023, everybody. We have, uh, you know, rewarded ourselves with a year's for a year's hard labor by uh, taking a week off. We're taking a week off and we're offering you a highlight reel of some of the best exchanges between John McWhorter of Columbia University and myself uh, over the course of the year 2022. We do hope you enjoy it. We will be back in two weeks time as per usual. Please stay tuned. Thanks for uh, watching The Glenn Show. You know, I, I think you're selling your readers short. I think your life is, you and your life would be of great interest. And, and I think many people, and, and particularly if you, given your um, mastery of, of the writing craft and the, you know, interesting style, I think that you uh, bring uh, to your prose, I, I, you know, I think it would be, you know, I'm not, I don't have a dog in this fight. You can write or not write. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to persuade you of anything, but, but I do think uh, that if you were to produce such a work, uh, it would be of lasting value and it would be appreciated. Yes, you would be seen as a black man. I mean, that's not insignificant to who no, you no. actually are. I mean, given that you said you, you talk about my people, you say what we do is important. You're defending the idea of doing it. And I, I want to come back to that later because I had this interesting conversation with Shelby Steele and Robert Woodson and Camille Foster that I want to talk to you about. But, but yeah, uh, this uh, typical reader that you envision who might be drawn to your book and who will be drawn to mine uh, will come with this curiosity driven through the filter of seeing you in that particular role as a African controversial African-American intellectual mm -hmm. and not seeing your, you know, I mean, I, I like that tour. I like that tour of your interior there uh, in your office <laughs> or whatever it is. I, I, I carried the laptop around. Yeah. I'm not at all surprised to learn that you're a cosmopolitan individual of a kind of sophisticated, uh, refined but sensibility. I know all... that's not what you were trying to say. I know you weren't bragging. No. You no, were just saying this is you. And and I agree. I mean, I feel that way all the time, man, because if, if I may, just for a moment, you know, I've lectured at the London School of Economics. I've lectured at the Delhi School of Economics. I've, I've been lectured in Korea and, you know, and... Ghana and South Africa and, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm a, I, I mean, if I say it, it'll sound so self-aggrandizement, but I'm a lot more than a black conservative 
writing at Substack and disagreeing with uh, Michael Eric Dyson or some of these dudes. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, way, way, way more. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's why, and I know you share this with me, I take umbrage at the lionization of lightweight, empty-suited, empty-headed motherfuckers like Ibram X. Kid. <laughs> <laughs> Who couldn't carry my book bag? Who hasn't, you. who hasn't read? No, no, I'm sorry. He hasn't read a fucking thing. If you ask him what Nietzsche said, he would have no idea. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's an unserious, superficial, empty suited, lightweight. He's not our equal, not even close. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm I I can't join you. (laughs) (laughs) You made me do it, John. You made me do it. (laughs) Oh God. Oh, I will say this. Glenn, it's going to happen to you and it would happen to me. We would write a memoir. You're going to write a memoir and you're going to go to something called a bookstore if it still exists. <laughs> and you know where they're going to put it? They're going to put it in African-American issues. Like, <laughs> as if that's all that you are. I've seen some of my books put in the black section that weren't even about race just because my name is mine. And that's, that's the way it would be. And even, you know, on websites, black books. And that's where they're going, that's where they're going to put you. And that's where they would put me, you know, as if that, that sums up our entire existence. And maybe I'm making too much of that. I think you are. But, I, I'm, I'm yeah. feeling liberated, man. I mean, that little rant that I just went on, I, <laughs> I apologize to those who are offended by my dismissive reaction of the great Ibram X. Kidney. I apologize. I did, not, I did not mean to offend you. I got carried away. What I'm seeing from what you're describing is that there are some parties in, for example, Britain, and um, I know there are some parties in France on this, where what they're afraid America is going to import is something very peculiar about us, that it's easy to forget how odd and modern it is. And I'm fascinated by, I almost wish I had the tools to study it formally, the difference between a person who is told you've really had it hard who bristles and doesn't want to be seen that way and wants to show that they can get past it and a person who is told you've really had it hard who finds that validating and is insulted if that isn't said and acknowledged and forms an identity around having had it hard and the idea in america educated America is that there's something enlightened about wanting to be seen that way. Whereas I think that the human norm is to go into a little bit of denial about how you have it hard. You don't want to be seen that way. And I think that many Nigerian immigrants here are inclined to think, no, I don't want to focus on how I have it hard. Even if I do, I'm going to kick butt anyway. And some people are better at it than others, but you see certain differences that people like Amy Chua get in trouble for calling attention to, you know, the Nigerian immigrant 
success. Amy Chu yeah. the Yale Law School professor who wrote a book with her husband, Jeb Rubenfield, the on doing this thing, package. giving a little index card. The triple package, right. And I just find it interesting. A lot of the problem that you and I have is that we just don't have that gene, or whatever it is, that says that you're supposed to focus on the obstacles and to be insulted if they're not dwelt upon. That's what I think they're afraid is going to be imported, because that's become an educated American way to frame these sorts of issues. And the sad thing is, and this is something that I see coming, we're talking about these black-white issues as if it was 1960, when America is black and white, and then there are like two Chinese immigrants and 16 Latinos. Of course, I'm exaggerating. But we're in an America where we're talking about this racial reckoning where it's mostly about black people. We are a vast minority of the population, and there are a great many other people who are not white who are here with a full range of issues and with a very different way of viewing what sociologists call victimization and agency. And it's getting to the point where we, Black America has a certain power to get a great deal of attention, to have the whole country in, to some extent focused on our issues when really we're, you know, what, one in nine people, and it's a very different scenario than it used to be. And the idea is that we have a particular history, but that's a thin justification for the amount of attention that we often are claiming we're supposed to get. And I imagine it's going to change. There are just too many other kinds of people. When I walk around in New York City, I think to myself, this idea that it's all about what was done to black people in the past and what we're going to do about black people now doesn't work when you see all of these South Asian immigrants, all of these Southeast Asian immigrants, all of these East Asian immigrants, all of these white people from Europe with thick accents, all of these people from so many places, not to mention the Caribbean and Africa, where every second black person from there doesn't agree with this ideology. It's going to change. I'm not sure what would tip it, because the idea is that you express a certain fealty to issues being centered around the concerns of native-born black Americans. But it's beginning to be a vast distortion in terms of what the whole country consists of. And I'd be interested to see where that's going to go. That was very well said. That that, uh, summarizes my concern quite accurately. Uh, I do think it's a, a ticking time bomb. Maybe that puts it a little bit hyperbolically. But you did say tipping. And uh, unraveling is another metaphor that comes to mind. A kind of consensus that the descendants of slaves are in the driver's seat in terms of the narratives about, quote, people of color, close quote, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all of that, where our uh, enslavement and marginalization and subjugation becomes the master tale about white supremacy and so on. It's not even an accurate characterization of the Negro uh, saga, in my opinion. Yes, I used the word Negro and I used it intentionally. You said Negro. I used it intentionally. (laughs) I don't even think that's an accurate story about black folks who descend from slaves, frankly. They're black billionaires in this country. There's a huge black middle class. This is a completely different country than it was in 1970, et cetera. I could go on for a very long time about that, as you know, and I won't. But in any case, it's definitely not true about Nigerian immigrants in the United States of America, the second generation, who are all over the Ivy League, as you may have noticed. 
Uh, I don't know if you can get the official statistics, but my impression is that at least a third and maybe more of the blacks, quote unquote, black students are second generation Caribbean and African immigrant families who are at Brown. Generally about two thirds are here. Okay, so there. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not even true about them. Moreover, you've got other, quote, people of color, like the Latinos. This majority-minority vision that some Democratic pollsters and others say guarantee a progressive domination of American politics soon enough, this is the flip side of the great replacement theory rhetoric that you hear from on the right of people sounding an alarm that the country is going to become non-white because too many non-white people are taken over, that the white uh, racists who are afraid of people of color, swarthy hordes, as you called them the last time we talked. The flip side of that are the crowing progressives who are counting, being counting heads of non-white people and thinking Texas is going to go blue, you know, because the Latino population is going and so forth and so on, and are operating on this uh, unified field theory of non-whiteness in which they reckon that all of these various non-white groups are in the same basket, politically speaking, and I think that's dead wrong. And I think you begin to see the unraveling when you look at the uh, diverse political behavior of Latino populations. I can't cite statistics, but the numbers were up voting for Trump in 2016, up by voting for Trump in 2020. We'll see what happens. They're more conservative culturally. They're not all pro-choice. A lot of them are Catholics. Oh, heaven forbid. Whereas the progressive thinks there are too many Catholics on the U.S. Supreme Court and you find the occasional pundit being willing to say such a bigoted, anti-religious statement is there are too many Catholics on the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, were there too many Jews on the U.S. Supreme Court when the Jews are overrepresented amongst those who are on the Supreme Court? Is that the way you want to talk about the United States Supreme Court? Well, I'm not sure how that goes over with a working class Catholic Latino family sitting in the southwest of the United States. They're culturally conservative. Um, and you can't take their votes for granted if you're a Democrat, it seems to me. The people of color argument, it seems to me, is, is a pretty thin argument. And the, and the confidence with which the uh, ultra-radical Black spokesman of the Black Lives Matter stripe wield this uh, weapon of non-whiteness as if they were speaking for all of these people, when they may find when they look around that law and order— actually appeals to a whole lot of, quote, people of color, and that defunding the police and castigating and attacking of the instruments of the maintenance of order in modestly endowed social environments is not a winning formula. Chester Bodine may well get recalled in San Francisco, for example, but we could, you know, run down the list of them. So. It's, we really... We're fish that don't know that we're wet. And um, I just think of, you know, take take somebody my color. You know, I'm middle brown. I, uh, some people call me light-skinned. I don't know what that means. I am red, as I used to call it. I'm in the, I'm the middle. Take me and then take somebody who, you know, has Bangladeshi immigrant parents. They're probably a little darker than me, but let's say we're about the same color. Now, there's this idea that we're both people of color. And the overtones of person of color is that we're both oppressed in some way by the white hegemony. Now, 
That person who is the child of, you know, basically, a, you, you know, we're talking about Raihan Salam. Hello. Hey, Raihan. Raihan. And so <laughs> basically. You should explain that to people. Explain to people how and it is so, that we're talking about Raihan Salam, who's president of the Manhattan Institute and is a man of color himself. I'm not sure exactly what his ethnic background is. We've South been Asian circling is, around. Is a, intellectual yeah. of some, of some uh, f- formidability, if that's a word. Is that a word? And he has been making statements along the lines of what you and I are, are talking about and quite, you know, quite pointedly yeah. and articulately, including the interview that he did with Ezra Klein I, in the New York Times I, uh, last I week. I call that to everyone's attention. It was outstanding. Ezra Klein and Raihan Salam. Yeah. But anyway, my point was just going to be that that Bangladeshi immigrant's child, whether it's Raihan or not, has certainly suffered some discrimination now and then, you know, somebody calls that person a name, somebody, you know, underestimates that person in some way. There are little things that happen, but that person generally is not inclined to think of themselves as oppressed by some hegemon the way black people are encouraged to. And we're the same color. We're the same people of color. And yet the Raihan person is thinking, yeah, not perfect, but certainly better than where my parents came from. And I'm I'm doing fine. I have friends. I, you know, I, I date. I get married. Everything's fine. Whereas if it's me, I'm supposed to feel more oppressed. And the reason is supposed to be, one, my history in slavery. But frankly, it was a very, very long time ago, as was Jim Crow. And then it's also supposed to be that I live in fear of being um, abused or killed by the police. Whereas the Bangladeshi immigrant kid doesn't. And as far as I'm concerned, that risk that I run is not significant enough to forge an identity around. And so I'm of color. This other person is of color. And we're both in the same boat. No, because that person isn't encouraged to think the way I am. And the way that I'm encouraged to think is not justified by slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, or the fact that the police might interpret me differently than they uh, uh, interpret him. And yet we're stuck with this whole notion. Yeah, we're both people of color and we're supposed to be worried about the white. And I mentioned a couple other things. And no, give your reaction to crime. Uh, these people are living often cheek by jowl with black populations that have high rates of criminal participation and they're being victimized by them. That might that might factor into it. Mm-hmm. Patriotism. These people think the streets are paved with gold in this country. It's the land of the free, almost quite literally. There's no place else on earth they'd rather have moved from Bangladesh to than here, where they and their children can realize the American dream. Whereas the standard Black Lives Matter line, line is the American dream uh, is a lie. That's what Ta-Nehisi Coates will tell you. That's what Eva Max Kendi will tell you. It's not cut out for you because um, because you're black. Values, these people often affirm a conservative value of family, of uh, sexual modesty, of birth within the uh, sanctity of marriage, of respect for parents, of a, a kind of uh, parental, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Which I regret to report is not always manifest in the behavior and the value matrix that characterizes much of the lower strata of African-American society. Of course, I'm not supposed to say that. I'm not supposed to say that, but it would appear to be the case. So the coalition is grounded on a kind of eliding of these 
very fundamental differences in worldview characteristic of various elements, components of the people of color. This is the problem, though. Glenn, don't you understand that the reason that there is this... I was just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) The reason for this disproportion in the black crime is racism. Didn't you know that? I mean, when I see a disproportion between white and black people in behavior or achievement, what I see is racism. Last time I checked, that was the wisest way for an enlightened person to think about these things that rises above all the possible biases that we might have. And so these young men are doing these things because we live in a racist society where they have no choice. Didn't you know that, Glenn? Just trying to remind you of the truth. I don't take any pleasure, you know, in, in broaching this issue. I'm, I'm just trying to be faithful to the forum and to what it is that we do when we talk. Uh, no, you realize that's, I'm that's, kidding. No, that's complete bullshit. I mean, come on, that's bullshit. You took a pistol and fired it out the window of your car driving past a gang rival and ended up killing a little six-year-old sitting on her auntie's lap. Because of racism? He Nobody believes that. He didn't have a dad. He didn't have a dad Oh, and to that's say, due to racism? Don't shoot that the gun that out the window. The fact that his father was irresponsible and wouldn't take uh, care of his own children is due to racism? Come the, on. The Nobody on, believes that. The war on drugs was instituted partly because of racism, and that's probably what sent his dad up the river. Okay. I mean, I have heard that <laughs> argument, but it's just complete BS, man. <laughs> Come on. And, and no, and I mean... You guys can tell us. We can take some questions at the end whether or not this is crazy. I don't think anybody believes it. And now here we hit this point, but I think think it's an important point. Is the guy who – Omar. Omar does this. It's this character that we've created. Is Omar evil for shooting that gun out the window, or has Omar grown up watching people do that and thinks it's the only way to prove his masculinity? And now I'm not kidding. In in Omar's head, that's all he knows – I can't hate Omar. I just think it's a shame that Omar has gone somewhere where that's a a norm. I don't hate him. I'm mad as hell at him, and I'm prepared to judge his behavior as contemptible. And there well may be reasons why he has behaved in that way, and I'm not sure your story exhausts the list of what those reasons might be. But if we can't hold people accountable for their behavior, we have no civilization at the end of the day. If we can't make judgments, Omar fires his pistol... The bullet goes through the brain of that six-year-old. She's now dead. That was an evil act. That was a, a um, that's a misshapen human being who uh, who committed that act. And he that act has to be judged. Uh, and and the f- fact that uh, he, his dad abandoned him. Everybody's got a story. The racist guy that walked into that market in Buffalo and murdered those people has a story. I'm not going to let that story obscure my clarity about the evilness of that act. Likewise, Omar. There is, well, a lot of things bother me, but one thing that bothers me a lot is that, um, and this is a non-black thing. This is me caricaturing, caricaturing white people a little bit, and I'm sorry, but... The idea that if you are an educated white person, you're supposed to see these obvious discrepancies, these obvious evils, and the clear 
strong tendency for things like this to be black American men. Some Latinos, essentially no Asians, a trickle of whites do these sorts of things, for example, in New York every year. Any idiot can see it. The fact that the educated white person looks over your shoulder and shakes their head and thinks, well, and you know, they're thinking it's, it's racism of some kind and everybody knows that doesn't make sense, but you can't address it. And then you move on and you start talking about Breaking Bad or something like that. You can't address it. To be a black person in that situation and to be the kind of black person who does not pretend to think that it's racism is so uncomfortable. I always think to myself, especially if they don't know me and they know my positions, do they think that I think it's racism and that therefore I can't engage with reality? But then I think to myself, this is a birthday party or something. I don't want to talk about this. And so we move on. You know, and we talk about hacks and, you know, whatever else because we're finished watching Breaking Bad. And it really is a drag. I wish we could have more productive conversations about this. For example, why does Omar do it? I wish there were an honest level we could all talk on, but we, we can't. That's the nature of being at certain gatherings to me. Yeah. And if I'm with a lot of my family, it's easier because a lot of them feel more like you than I do. It's when you're at that, frankly, mostly white Park Slope birthday party where it has to be a fake conversation and everybody keeps looking over my shoulder. And I'm always wondering, what's back there? And it, it certainly isn't the truth. And so it's very uncomfortable. Well, I was just going to remark there's a class dimension to this. I mean, you were in Park Slope and that cocktail party or whatever is what I'm it almost is. almost never in Park Slope. <laughs> but, yeah, that but, but if you're in a church basement in the hardcore inner-city neighborhood where a lot of people have lost their kids to this kind of thing, I think the conversation is going to be different. So I, it's going to be different. I once interviewed uh, the uh, Mr. C and his uh, acolytes of the Rose Street Community Center in Baltimore. He's a black guy in the hood. Um, an older guy who has uh, devoted his life to trying to help, you know, people, young people deal with the situations and avoid the temptations and whatnot. They got jobs over at Johns Hopkins. They're hiring people. You know, you guys ought to go over there. Let's pray this morning before we set out, you know, on a day that is fraught with all kind of temptation and all kind of stuff. He's in every city. That, yeah, that you, got, you got a guy like that in every city. And you talk to him. Now, uh, his uh, cohorts have lost, you know, my sister, my son, my father, killed by gun violence in the city, killed by people wielding guns in the city, and so on. And uh, there, and I asked him, I said, are you mad? Because I'm mad. And they equivocated a little bit. They didn't want to just say straight up they were angry. They didn't want to just point a finger, because they're but for the grace of God go I. I mean, one guy told a story about how he wanted to go get revenge because his sister had been murdered, and he thought he knew who had done it. And he thought that the police officer who gave him a clue as to who had done it was baiting him to try to encourage him to go and commit the crime so that the police officer could then come around and arrest him for committing the crime, he thought. He hated the cops, but he also hated the guy that killed his sister, and he was on the horns of a dilemma. So, I mean, there's... there's a kind of ambiguity, a kind of mixed feelings of my anger and your sadness, a kind of, you know, resignation. This is the hand we've been dealt, but also a sense that this is not right because it's not right. 
It's not right. And actually, Ian's book is about using family and education and a focus on entrepreneurship. He has an acronym, and I just gave and you, religion. I John. just gave you F E E, and I was I was leaving out the R. The I was R get, is for religion. I was going to get to it at the end. I wasn't going to make it fear, and so it's. <laughs> Family, religion. You see, I read this book very quickly, but it was very good. Education and entrepreneurship. And the idea is, it's funny. You and I, apparently, if you look look on the Twitter, we deny that racism exists or a certain kind of person says we underplay it. But the truth is we know it exists, and so does Ian. The idea is what do you do despite it? It's always going to rain. There will always be germs. We can get past it. And there seems to be... Uh, today is my birthday, John. Oh, I didn't know. Wow. You should feel honored, uh, and the audience okay. as well, that I'm taking time out of my precious birthday, my 74th anniversary of my birth. That is a noble age to be. Wow. Are you going to eat good food? Okay, so here's the menu. Uh, I had a breakfast sandwich this morning. My lovely wife, Lawan, who you know, uh, is taking care of me today. It's my special day. And we have friends coming over. It's going to be a dinner party of eight, early evening. Mm. And uh, she is grilling a rack of lamb. Oh, I want that. Which oh. has been marinating in mint and uh, garlic. For a long and time? Yeah, mm. man. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have her patented, everybody get ready, collard greens. Okay, she got some oh. some bacon fat. Uh, <laughs> she got her coconut milk. She uses coconut milk in this amazing concoction that ends up coming, and the greens practically melt in your mouth. Mm. Uh, black eyed peas. We're going southern. Fuck. Yeah, she's soaked up a big bowl of black eyed peas. They start out all dry and scrunched up, and you put them in the water. Yeah. You leave them overnight, and they absorb and they expand, and they're going to be cooked with onion and you know. Uh, whatever. Mm. And uh, a peach cobbler. Of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to feast. That. that sounds <laughs> fantastic. Wow. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty wow. good on my 74th birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations. Appreciate wow. it. I'm still thinking about that food. <laughs> I wish that I wish that you could join us, uh, you and your lovely partner. I wish that you guys could join us. And you're going to have red wine with it, right? Uh, yeah, and I'm going to have to confess, there is a good bottle of single malt that is going to accompany, you know, as an aperitif uh, and also as a nightcap. As, as after. an aperitif, right. <laughs> Damn. All right. I've I've got to change my life. That sounds fantastic. Well, no, what I think you should do, John, I think everybody would like this, including our audience, is get on the train. It's only a couple of hours up here to Providence. Uh, we can do an in-person session in uh, my office slash studio of our conversation. And then we can party hardy until the wee hours of the morning. That would be swell. You and yeah. uh, <laughs> Oksana. That's her name, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Hmm. We should, that should be like an autumn thing. Yeah. 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 We should Late actually fall. do it. We should definitely do it. Definitely. I don't know. Probe this political identity thing a little bit. So the Democrats, in your view, are better than Republicans. Here, let me play devil's advocate. 
people will realize that, of course, I have a great deal more sympathy for Republicans as you than you do. They will realize that from our uh, previous conversations. But I just want to put I should say that I felt like you did 20 years ago, maybe 15, but things have changed. Go ahead. Trump. Trump probably in MAGA. The MAGA, uh, uh, I'm guessing that that's what's, that's what's pushed you in this direction. But I want to talk about crime. What, what do you think about the justice DAs? How about Larry Krasner in Philadelphia? How about uh, this guy in uh, Manhattan? I forget his name now. Uh, Brags, uh, Alvin. Yeah. Uh, how about Kim Fox in uh, Chicago? And, uh, you know, what about uh, the guy that was recalled in San Francisco, Chesa Bodine? And what, yeah. uh, what about the guy down in Los Angeles uh, who's uh, in the similar spirit? There are others. Mm-hmm. And they have uh, rescinded uh, the use of cash bail and put a lot of people on the street who are dangerous. And there's a crime spike and whatnot. And you've got a whole lot of rhetoric around what to do about crime. The Democrats have one point of view. I think it's clear, at least the uh, outlines of it are clear. And if they deny defunding the police, they can't deny the fact that at their core of their constituency are a lot of people who want to defund the cops and so on. And the Republicans have a different. T- so that's. What about the border? Uh, mm-hmm. Very clearly different sensibilities, not just concrete policies, but fundamentally different philosophies about the nature of the country. Uh, the Dems got the better of that? Do they? I don't know. What about wokeness? You wrote a book called uh, Woke Racism, for crying out mm-hmm. loud. The mm-hmm. guy that just got through getting a landslide Republican victory in Florida, I'm talking around DeSantis in his victory speech, said, Florida is where woke comes to die. He's running against the thing that you're against. He's a Republican, John. What about critical race theory, et cetera? What about the 1619 Project, et cetera? What about affirmative action as a Bible and so forth? What about appealing to racial little peculiar identity things like appointing people based on their genitalia and their skin color to the U.S. Supreme Court? You for it or against it? So I'm confused, John. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, It's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. 
It really makes me feel better, I've noticed. It abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro-habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I get it. Is this is this democratic thing a posture, or is it rooted in a uh, Democratic Party preference? A posture on your part, excuse me, and with respect, or is it is it rooted in a in a comprehensive assessment of what the party stands for and, and what you believe in yourself? Yeah, I get it. Um, it would be very advantageous of me as the um, the quote unquote contrarian, controversial black thinker to always say, "But I'm a Democrat because I'm hoping that people won't be so mad at me." That would be very canny. But in this case, it is genuine. For one thing, I've always been. So it wouldn't be that I was a Republican for a certain time and then, you know, saw the light. Like or something me, like, like me. Um, frankly, yeah. <laughs> it's I've all, I was raised by somebody who, you know, taught, literally taught a course called Racism 101 at Temple University in the 70s. So this is, I'm, this is me bred to the bone, despite the fact that because of my reserved manner, Many people assume that I must be a conservative Republican and also because I worked for the Manhattan Institute. But the Manhattan Institute doesn't mean that you're a Republican. And talking like this and moving like this and laughing like this does not mean that you're a Republican. Now, that's not what you're saying, but frankly, it's what a lot of people are thinking. But the point is, which party seems better posed to be in the position of running a complex nation in a mature, thoughtful way? at any time in the future. And so all the things you described, which I did write a book against, are one kind of Democrat who get a lot of attention and scare a lot of people because of the way they use language. And what I've tried to argue in woke racism is that we need to stop letting them scare us. And signs are, and you know, I vary from week to week on this, but signs are that what made me so angry as to write that book in 10 minutes in 2020 is ebbing. It's beginning to pass. I think David Brooks was right the other day. Those people are winning in some sub-quarters, but people are getting tired of the sorts of things that happened in 2020. Those people are beginning to be on the ropes, and to the extent that they're not, still. So, for example, I'm disgusted at the idea that there's no real crime problem 
using the numbers to pretend that there's been no uptick or that nobody has any reason to be concerned in particular districts. The idea that you let dangerous people out onto the street, all with the tacit assumption that it's what society deserves because it's not really these people's fault that they're criminals, etc. I I have no truck with any of that, what used to be called root causes. That's what all this is. But it doesn't always have to be that way. There is pushback against people like that. And Glenn, the question for you is, if it weren't the Democrats who were in control, if you're not going to put your hat in with the Democrats and you're going to put it in with the Republicans, what do you think they would do about crime? Because if I may, you spend an awful lot of time in your career arguing about over-incarceration. You think that the Republicans would not wish to do what somebody could 10 years later call over incarceration and it would be disproportionately black and Latino people who are over incarcerated. I don't see that the Republicans would have better ideas. Yes, some, but the Republican Party has been taken over by lunatics. So why would I put my hat in with them when I don't see any chance of them changing anytime? Soon. It doesn't seem like there's as much of a vigorous conversation among Republicans other than the two or three we know in the think tank world who have kept their sense. But in terms of votes, in terms of this mostly rural white population who are voting for them and also the new people who are coming on, how would I, what would motivate me to start pulling the lever for Republicans? I just can't see it, especially now. I thought about it in the aughts, but now? I don't have to explain why I'm voting for the party of Trump, I, even to myself. <sighs> okay, well, they'd be tougher. What would the Republicans do? They'd be more pro-cop. They'd be more anti-teachers union. Uh, they'd be tougher on criminals. More people would go to jail. They would be disproportionately black. They'd be criminals. Uh, yeah, I wrote a lot about over-incarceration because we went from 500,000 in 1980 to 2 million at the turn of the century, in a 20-year period, we quadrupled the number of people on lock and key. Blacks were overrepresented amongst them. My sentences were too long. We were too punitive. We overshot, in my opinion. Uh, but I think the post-George uh, uh, Floyd uh, uh, upsurge in crime that's come out since the disorder in the summer of 2020, where we stood down, Republicans would have done what Tom Cotton wanted to do. They would have deployed uh, muscular forces, what President Trump wanted to do, although he didn't have the authority to do it without the request from local uh, officials. They would have deployed the force on the streets to try to keep order. They, there would have been a, a, a deep uh, uh, a punitive uh, a aspect to it. And you're asking me now, you're asking me to choose between um, Portland or Minneapolis, uh, or Kenosha, Wisconsin, or Milwaukee, or Baltimore, Freddie Gray, or whatever, on the one hand, the way it went down. And a tough-minded, uh, pugilistic speech is being given by people in the White House and in other uh, local officials cracking down and locking people up who are behaving disorder. I choose the latter. I choose mm -hmm. the latter unapologetically. I would be saving black lives by choosing the latter. I'd be preserving the integrity of our society uh, and, and the security and safety of our people by choosing the latter. I don't have to apologize about that. To the extent that my disgust that over-incarceration would have led me into a defund the police posture, I would have been very wrong. Uh, and, I, you know, I go with Ralph Mongual. 
uh, I, I go I with Heaven McDonald. I go with Heaven McDonald. I go with Roland Fryer. Um, I, I think the anti-cop reaction has been an absolute fiasco and a disaster for black people. In the immediate effect, more dead black bodies in the cities. Uh, and in the long-term political effect, alienation of a silent majority of the American populace from an identification with the causes of these uh, communities. Um, so uh, I think the cost of wokeness, the certitude of moral uh, rectitude and the kind of self-righteousness with which people are pronounced uh, that has led into uh, absurdities like prison abolition as a policy, the, the cost of that uh, to the people on behalf of whom those such arguments are alleged to have been made uh, will be reckoned uh, in the fullness of time. So, you know, uh, you know, I think when I look at these cities, look at Baltimore. Democrats have ruined it. Look at what's going on in Chicago. Read uh, Ken Griffin, the, uh, the financier billionaire guy whose uh, Citadel hedge fund just moved out of Chicago and relocated to Miami. And they're going to spend a billion dollars building a headquarters in Miami that could have been built in Chicago. Because that city is becoming unlivable. Follow what the journalists who are who don't have their heads up their butts are actually saying about what's going on on the streets in Chicago. Democrats have ruined city after city. They've ruined Detroit, et cetera. So, I, you know, Rick Caruso for mayor of Los Angeles. Even some uh, trendy, left-leaning, celebrity uh, political funders in L.A. are beginning to line up behind the Republican. I guess he's not a Republican, actually. I think it's a he's a... a Used to be Republican is now officially a Democrat, but he's a businessman yeah. developer uh, versus the uh, black political royalty congresswoman who's a uh, bass uh, who's running out there. I go with the Republican. But I want to talk about Thomas as an African American icon. And the lack of a sense of, if you had said this about Barack or Michelle Obama, there would be outrage. People would be injured by it. You know, not just calling somebody a racist because they use a certain word in reference to Barack or Michelle, but really like a feeling of disappointment that these African-American icons do not garner the reverence and deferential respect which they've earned. You bought the Obama campaign and, you know, you were very excited about Obama's elevation. And part of that had to do with him being a black man. And I don't discredit his blackness, but you understand it's complicated. And uh, regardless of his politics... You, he, he represented something for you. Now, Clarence Thomas is black. He's not just black. He's very black. <laughs> In the sense of, look at the root there. Look at what the root of it is. It's the Geechee dialect on the sea islands of Georgia, man. It's a step from slavery, man. 
he ascends to the highest pinnacle of American government for decades. This is independent of his jurisprudential philosophy. This is not about original intent. This is about blackness within the context of America, about the black experience. He embodies something. If we can't get past left and right, feminist and uh, Christian uh, uh, moralist as African-Americans and see the value of this man's contribution to our history. If we let the blemish of Anita Hill obscure 30 years of service at the top of American government, if we allow the fact that he's a Catholic to color our appreciation of this life. Come on, man, let's stay in touch with reality of this black life. So I'm sorry. You cannot call him an Uncle fucking Tom on my watch. You can't do that, man, because you're denigrating the real experience of African-Americans on behalf of ideological theory. The superficial morality of spoken word etiquette versus the genuine morality of a thick, historically informed engagement with important questions of, of policy, of state, of, of ethics. Uh, and I think that's what's at stake here. And his use of the N-word uh, years ago, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm fully aware of the facts about the Joe Rogan uh, incident. Joe Rogan, some tapes have surfaced. Joe Rogan has been controversial because uh, he has views and has had guests on his show about vaccines that are uh, seen by some as um, anti-vax or whatever. And uh, uh, there's been some controversy at Spotify about his views about the vaccine. And so now, lo and behold, in the wake of that controversy, some tapes have surfaced in which Joe Rogan is heard using the N-word. Do you know anything more? About that, I, I want to just suggest the surfacing of these tapes is not an accident. The surfacing of these tapes at this moment is uh, an effort to bring down Joe Rogan. Uh, yeah. So. Um, um, musicians have been pulling out of Spotify, you know, in protest of Spotify's having harboring him. And I think the singer India Ari um, put together a, 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 a reel, so to speak, of Joe Rogan episodes where he used the N-word. And the truth is, I just recently took in this story. And I, there are two things I don't do that normal people do. I do not watch late night shows. I don't watch Jimmy Kimmel and all yeah. those. I have, And I also, I don't listen to podcasts. I seem to do quite a few of them lately, yeah. but I really don't listen. So I've never heard Joe Rogan. To me, he's a delightful character actor from news radio, the sitcom, which I have watched through three times all the way through. I don't know Joe Rogan after that, but I know what goes on on the show. And this is a little premature, Glenn, because I haven't studied it. But from what's been said, what people are calling attention to is Rogan having used the word in imitation or in quotation. It's not that he was on the show saying the problem with niggers is that they da 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 da. Yeah, He's you just used the word, by the way, John. 
I sure did, and I stand by it because we're black. We can do it. But he is was not doing that. He's a 21st century you know person. He was joshingly imitating comedians like Red Fox and using it in quotation marks. Now, if that's not true, we have to have another conversation. But he wasn't lobbing. The, is that the word? Yeah. He wasn't lobbing the word. He was use, he was referring to the word or imitating people who use the word yeah. the way until about 10 minutes ago, many white kids would, you know, chant their hip hop lyrics. To me, there's a huge difference between the two things. And as I've said and written often, I think it's absurd that we've gotten to the point that we're treating it as a taboo sequence of sounds as if, you know, we were, you know, worshiping some sun god or something. And it should have no effect on his career. Maybe he wouldn't choose to do those things now, but frankly, when he was doing it then, it wasn't hurting anybody. And this business of not attending to the difference between using it and referring to it is childish. And once again, we don't need it. I don't, I don't see why it's necessary, although there's a certain kind of black person now who claims to be deeply injured whenever that sequence of sounds is uttered for any reason. I think it's a pose. So yeah, I'm, I don't like this one at all. Now we can Neither talk about I. Bill Rogan and the COVID, but this, this won't do. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with Joe Rogan and the COVID either. I think people can have their views about, about that. And I think the issue is to what's the scientific evidence. If he was saying something that was demonstrably wrong as a matter of science and he was propagating false information, that would be one thing. Uh, but there's a debate. There was a debate about masking. It's an ongoing debate. There's a debate about the efficacy of lockdowns. It's an ongoing debate. There's a debate about the consequences of mass jabbing. It's an ongoing debate. There's a man called Alex Berenson. He, he is a well-informed Vax critic, skeptic out there, he can exist. I mean, rebut him is the way that you deal with that. You, you don't, uh, you don't uh, burn him at the stake because he had a view about. I mean, the, in the fullness of time, we're going to learn a lot about policy responses in the uh, wake of this pandemic, which, in retrospect, proved to be wrong. Nobody knew that Andrew Cuomo was killing. Thousands of people by the decisions that he made about what happens to people coming out of hospitals, going to nursing homes and so forth and so on. Hindsight is 2020 kind of thing like that. Um, but I have an observation. Do you know this book by James Scott, the Yale political scientist called Weapons of the Weak? Uh, it, it's, no. it's a study of how it is that dominated peoples can fight back surreptitiously. I mean, I think this uh, policing of the spoken sounds nigger and saying you can't say that is a pathetic expression of weakness. It's petulant. It's, it's like grabbing the microphone from a speaker whose arguments you just can't bear to hear. It has, there's no power in it whatsoever. There's no real power. There's no wealth in it. There, mm -hmm. There's no entrepreneurship in it. There's no educational mastery in it. There's no fixing any broken family in it. There's no solving a crime problem in it. All it is is throwing a tantrum. I'm weak. I'm black. You said the N-word. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's pathetic. It is. It's performed delicacy. And there's been such an uptick in that on that word over the past about 15 years. 
And I just don't get how anybody can say they're a strong person and engage in that performance of allowing white people that power. People are going to keep on uttering it in, you know, for various reasons. And we've got this popular music that's full of it. And you decide that anytime you hear this word said by anybody but a black man from the street, you're going to, you know, go crawling into a corner. It's a performance. It's not real. Nobody cognitively whole truly feels that way. It's something that black people teach each other and it really needs to stop. There are other, as you're saying, we have other things to do. Go ahead. Okay, John, this is a challenging one from William. What are your thoughts regarding Sam Harris's recent controversial statements made regarding the media's influence over the previous presidential election? Personally, for the past 15 years, I have considered Sam's views and approach to be practically impeccable. But upon hearing his latest take, he seems to be saying that since he has deemed another Trump presidency to be a true existential threat to America, and civilization, then it is perfectly acceptable and even necessary for social media and news organizations to conspire in any way, e.g. unethical or even illegal, to not allow Trump's election to occur. I would have imagined that Sam would abhor this kind of rationalizing. But upon deeper inspection, if, say, an actual narcissistic psychopath whose decisions could not be predicted and who could never be reasoned with, I'm not saying that describes Trump, had a legitimate chance to win the presidency, would it not be justifiable, if not necessary, to uphold Sam's position? Okay, that's well stated, William. That's a question uh, for our consideration, John. Uh, you, of course, have seen Sam's, you know, or seen the scuttlebutt. It was well described there by William. So what do you think? That's the eternal question. When are emergency measures justified? And is this one of those cases? I don't think that um, I'm flying blind here, but I don't know if we can be sure enough that there would be that degree of catastrophe if Trump won again, that it would be justified to break those ethical and procedural rules. And I think everybody knows that I think Trump is a maleficent moron. He is quite unpredictable. And he would hire people who would allow him to be, and probably even more than he did before. Um, but no, I don't see it. I don't think we're sure enough of it being that bad a thing. Not to mention that maybe there are things that we could do, knowing what he's capable of the second time around, to keep things from getting that bad. I lack the imagination to actually imagine that we're on our way to a civil war. I think that there's an extent to which boys will be boys, and they like to carry guns. That that way that they have of talking online, the things that they like to say to left-leaning interviewers. I've read the articles. They're scary, but I'm not inclined to imagine that revolution. And that really may mean that I just have a tendency to go day to day and am not a fan of action movies. But no, I would not agree with Sam on that, although I know where he's coming from. And it would be truly grisly if that man were elected again. But I don't know if it would be that grisly. What do you think, man? Okay, that's a that's a response. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we come out on the same uh, side of the question, which is that uh, we can't we can't support Sam Harris and his statement. But it sounded like you just said that the link between uh, 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 
the election of Trump and the catastrophe isn't strong enough. It's not an immediate like, you know, you knew this guy was Hitler and it was going to be a Holocaust if you didn't kill him kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And uh, I have a very different angle of vision. I'm terrible. I'm terribly disappointed, actually, in Sam Harris. Uh, uh, taking that stance and am am a, and deeply frightened by the fact that I know it's a widely held uh, position. Uh, for two reasons. One has to do with democracy and the other has to do with the integrity of our institutions. So you have got to persuade the people who want to elect Donald Trump president that that's a bad idea. You, you cannot preemptively exclude the consideration of that and think that you're not doing grave damage to the institution. Would Trump not do grave damage to the institution? Yeah, Trump would do grave damage, but you <laughs> are doing it. <laughs> you just said people don't have a right to know the truth because you and your fucking wisdom are going to protect them from themselves. That's what you said. So it's anti-democratic in the extreme. You're not that clever. Your mouth is not a prayer book. You do not have a, a, a main line into, quote unquote, the virtue and truth. You got to persuade those people. That's the job. That's the job. The job is to not let him win. Not, not to manipulate the mechanisms of, of public information dissemination so as to, I mean, that's horrible. That's horrible. That's the end of the road. Trump will have won even if he loses if you do that. Of course, Glenn, the problem is that there's a certain kind of person out there who is, you know, no more amenable to reason than the woke racist that I talk about. It's a religion. And so nothing you say will convince a critical mass of those people that Trump is not the Messiah. I, I, I don't agree with that. I, I'm sorry. It may be that he's the Messiah. If you can't persuade him that he's not, it may be that he is. I, I mean, I'm sorry. It's a democracy. <laughs> I, I, the, the fervency with which, I mean, you have to go to some of these places and talk to these people. In rural Texas. Uh, in southern Indiana, uh, in in Arkansas, in Missouri. You have to actually go to Mississippi, you have to go to Florida, and you have to talk to some of these people. These are our fellow citizens. Trump will live and Trump will die. The grounding that gave rise to this movement will not be swept away by the arrogant hands of editors uh, and technicians um, and and pundits, in, in in my humble opinion, I mean there there's some really deep structural fissures here. So I disagree uh, with Harris that you know you can. I mean I'm not now addressing myself to how big a threat is Donald J Trump. I'm saying what you propose to do to our institutions on behalf of saving the country from Trump, uh, uh, burns the village in order to save it, destroys the thing that you think you're trying to protect. And, and it's the lazy way out. The, the lazy response to the threat that, again, uh, stipulating the threat that Trump is alleged to propose to the country, the lazy response to it is to keep Hunter Biden's laptop story 
from seeing the light of day before an election. Have you any idea what that does to the integrity of the institutions? You say he's the threat to democracy. So no, 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 a thousand times no. I'm always bemused by, I don't, well, it's a matter of degree between us on this one. Trump didn't appall you. He never really did, did he? Or at least he didn't until January 6th. He didn't appall you. And it's almost as if you've seen something that I didn't, like there was some president before, but we both know that there wasn't. I just find it genuinely interesting. He gets my hair standing on end. He never did that to you. I I don't want to put it quite the way you put it because he did many appalling things. Trump did many appalling things. Was I appalled by the appalling things he did? Yes, I was appalled by the appalling things he did. (laughs) Did I react to Trump the way you did? No, I did not react to Trump the way you did. Was I as alarmed by Trump the way uh, you were and are? I mean, I had a, a dear friend, a guy I've known for many decades, uh, whom I saw recently. <laughs> and the first thing about it was out to me is you're not urgently enough denouncing Trump. And I said, man, you are crazy. My, my reaction to that was, first of all, Trump is not any longer president. Oh, but he's there. He's there. I said, can you not get over your Trump derangement syndrome? You're going to really let that drive your conversation? So, and what have I always said in response to this question? I only repeat myself, which is that it's not Trump. It's the people who support Trump who have my attention and the uh, personalization of my reaction to that. I mean, so, so for example, what, what is Trump? He's three, count them, three Supreme court justices whom he appointed. That's a third of the court. The people who cheer that advent, are measured in the scores of millions in this country. They like the fact that Roe versus Wade was overturned. There are a lot of those people. We're going to have to deal with this. The culture is in its flux, and there are political ramifications of profound changes that have to be processed through our institutions. So when people try to shortcut that, I'm just going to be kind of repeating my answer about Sam Harris. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get absorbed in Trump, 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 Trump. Besides, besides, he's not wrong about everything. Trump, Trump wasn't wrong about everything. Trump was not wrong about um, your ghettos are hellish places that have been ruined by democratic misrule. He was not wrong, in my opinion, about if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. In my opinion, in my opinion, he was not wrong about you cannot put a navy and an army on every continent on the planet and still think you're serving the people. In my opinion, it was at least discussing what he said about China is going to become a force in the 21st century and the consequences for how we deal with it are being measured in these dusty towns in the Midwest of this country, which I want to see rebuilt. Okay, and you just made me, you forced me to give a pro-Trump speech. I'm not pro-Trump, but I hate the ossified political consensus, which he challenged, just like Brexit challenged in the United Kingdom. 
that has a class connotation to it. Laptop classes versus people who work with their hands, college graduates versus people who I love the uneducated. Uh, cultural nouveau riche who chart their uh, 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 transgressive styles of life out and force them down your throat versus conservative Catholics uh, in uh, blue collar uh, precincts of uh, et cetera. I mean, uh, I saw and see in the Trump movement a challenge to some things in American political culture that need to be called to account. And I think the personification of evil in the person of Trump and then the, you know, supercilious kind of morally self-righteous, oh, I'm saving democracy, is a dodge. It's a dodge from answering the questions that Trump's popularity put before the the governing elites of this country. That's what I think. We're going to return to this. Let's let's do let's but let's leave room for another another question, if we may. Okay, we got time for one more at least. Because the Supreme Court is on my mind lately. And yeah, man, and the affirmative action case is coming. And I, you know, I mean, what do you think is going to, what do you think those people are going to do with this uh, Harvard UNC case? They're going to gun well, affirmative action. Um, it's, it's gone. I've already got my editorial pieces planned. It's, it's gone. And in that, they are wow. correct. So, yes, I mean, I, I understand what you mean about how Trump or Trumpianism is not, Trumpism is not always wrong. However, talking about his appointees, I've got some issues with this direction that the court has gone. Or if you read the latest um, New Yorker piece on Alito, which is really worth reading from beginning. I have not. I'll take a look, though. I recommend it. But yeah, we'll return to that. Okay, we'll come back to that in due course. We've got uh, time for one more question, and it will not be, I repeat, it will not be about Ibram X. Kendi. Ira Glass, the uh, public uh, radio uh, personality who puts uh, this, American this American life, life. out of WBEZ in Chicago about 20 years ago did a feature on me and Witty. Really? Huh. He interviewed me, he interviewed Witty because this essay that I wrote described a particular event. The event was Fred Hampton had been murdered by police authorities in Chicago. The Black Panther Party, which was strong on the South Side, where Woody and I lived, was holding rallies and meetings to confer with the community about how to respond to the murder of Fred Hampton. Woody and I were at one of those meetings. It was boisterous. He was the only white person in the room. Quote, unquote. Quote, he looked white. He's black, but he looks white. Mm-hmm. So he would have been assumed to be white. So these guys up in front of who are running the meeting, when Woody raises his hand and wants to say something, call him out. And say, you, you know, what are you, white infiltrator in here in our meeting? Uh, and who can vouch for this white guy, they say. Okay, he and I had come to the meeting together. He's my best friend. Has been for 10 years. I don't vouch for him in that meeting. I, I stay silent. And he's asked to leave the meeting. And he leaves. And I didn't vouch for him because I wanted to be accepted among the black radicals. And I thought if I, you know, who was going to be vouching for me? I brought a white boy to the meeting. I, 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 I chickened out. I lost my nerve. I betrayed my friend in that moment of need. 
on behalf of the idea of being accepted by strangers. I didn't really know those people in that room, but they were black and I wanted to be black. I want to be down with the brothers. I'm 20 years old. Give me a break. Okay. I wanted to identify and be accepted by the brothers. I wanted to be a radical. I feared that if I tried to speak up for the white boy, I, I would be in bad order with the, with the black radicals in the room. So I, I, I betrayed my friend. And I wrote an essay about this 20 years after the fact in which I berated myself in, a, in effect for um, making this phony thing about racial identity more important than the real thing, which was the love that I had for this kid. I mean, we had come up together. We'd been through thick and thin together. That was my friend. I sacrificed the friendship for this abstract uh, uh, team joining uh, rah, rah, rah thing, which is thin. It's thin. It's not a thick connection to another person. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of phony. It, it, it won't last. It doesn't hold me up, it, you know, et cetera. This is what I'm trying to argue in the essay against racial identity as a totem, against it as a as a thing that you you are more than this. We're, we're, we're more than this. Woody and I were a lot more than the color of our skin. We had that together. I should have stood up for him. Anyway, he and I never spoke of this incident. Well, that's afterwards. Mm. It happened and I was ashamed and I didn't know what he felt. Maybe and he, he may be understood. Exactly. That's what mm-hmm. Ira discovered. Ira, when he interviewed him, <laughs> and by the way, his office in uh, some obscure building in downtown Chicago, uh, where he's the public defender, had one of these Huey Newton. You remember Huey Newton in the fan chair, the wicker Very chair well. with the big afro? Mm-hmm. That was a portrait that he had behind his desk. And the first thing that he says to Ira, it, it, this is, he's saying this in the year 1998, okay? <laughs> the first thing he, uh, Huey Newton in 1998, okay? And the first thing he says to Ira Glass is, I'm the whitest looking black man you're ever going to see. <laughs> so uh, when he lived and died, his, uh, his uh, uh, loyalty to his race. And when Ira asked him, uh, told him about the essay, which he hadn't seen of mine, and asked him how he felt about it, he said, Oh, I wish he had said something. I didn't know he anguished about it. Actually, I didn't think that much about it. He chose his people. He had to make a choice mm. between his friend and his people. He chose his people. I can understand that. Mm. That's pretty <laughs> big of him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 